You're listening to Precinct 444, a podcast network from the National Law Enforcement Museum. Today we're bringing you an episode from Law & Disorder, where we dive into the world of true crime stories with memorable cases that have lasting effects for law enforcement. On today's episode of Law & Disorder, we're going to be discussing the case of FBI double agent Robert Hansen, who is believed to be one of the most damaging spies in the Bureau's history. Unbeknownst to his colleagues, Hansen conducted espionage activities in intermittent periods over three decades, handing over dozens of classified sources, counterintelligence techniques, and investigations to Soviet and later Russian contacts at the KGB and SVR, respectively. Hansen was finally caught and arrested in 2001, and he died in prison of natural causes earlier this year. But there were a lot of red flags that investigators missed. And at one point, Hansen was working on a bureau counterintelligence team that was looking for double agents like himself. Robert Hansen was born and raised in Chicago, Illinois. His father was actually an officer with the Chicago Police Department. And Hansen graduated from William Howard Taft High School in 1962 before going off to Knox College in Galesburg, Illinois, where he earned his bachelor's degree in chemistry. And initially after graduation, Hansen applied for a cryptanalysis job at the National Security Agency, or NSA. However, budget constraints meant that Hansen was denied the job. So instead, he decided to go to dental school at Northwestern. He stuck with this program for about three years before switching to studying business and earning his MBA in 1971 in accounting and information systems. He began working for a private accounting firm and after a year entered the field of law enforcement, taking a position as an internal affairs investigator for the Chicago Police Department, specializing in forensic accounting. And in 1976, Hansen set his sights higher, and he left the Chicago Police Department to become a special agent in the FBI. Robert Hansen was sworn in as a special agent on January 12, 1976, and he was transferred to the FBI's field office in Gary, Indiana, which is right outside of the city of Chicago. At this time, Hansen was married to his wife, Bernadette Bonnie Wauk, who he had met while attending dental school in Northwestern. By 1978, the couple had three children, and Hansen was transferred to the Bureau's New York City field office. With this transfer, Hansen was placed in counterintelligence, and he was given the task of compiling a database of Soviet intelligence for the FBI. A year into his counterintelligence assignment is when his espionage activities began. In 1979, Hansen approached the Soviet main intelligence doctorate, known as the GRU, and offered his services. The GRU is not the KGB, which would be the Soviet equivalent to our CIA. Rather, it was a foreign military service agency of the Soviet Army General Staff of the Soviet Union until 1991, and it remained in service for a few months into the Russian Republic. Ultimately, it disbanded in 1992 to be replaced by the Russian GRU, and it's just another intelligence gathering service. But anyway, Hansen approached the GRU offering his services, and this is when his first cycle of espionage began. During this cycle, Hansen provided the GRU with significant amounts of classified information, including details of the FBI's bugging activities and lists of suspected Soviet intelligence agents working within the United States. 
One of the most notable leaks he provided during this first cycle was the betrayal of Soviet double agent Dmitry Polyakov, who was working as a CIA informant. Much like Hansen, who was passing U.S. intelligence to the Soviets, Polyakov was delivering enormous amounts of Soviet intelligence to the U.S., and he was doing this while simultaneously rising through the ranks of the Soviet army. While Hansen did give Soviet intelligence the information about Polyakov first in 1979, it was ultimately a CIA mole named Aldrich Ames's betrayal of Polyakov six years later that led to his arrest. Polyakov was arrested in 1986 and sent back to Moscow, where he was executed in 1988. Polyakov was arrested in 1986 and sent back to Moscow, where he was executed in 1988. Hansen's betrayal of Polyakov would not come to light until his own arrest in 2001. But it was after that betrayal of Dmitry Polyakov that Hansen's espionage activities ceased for a while, and his truly volatile espionage activities wouldn't begin again until 1985. But let's back up just a couple of years to set the scene. In 1981, Hansen was transferred to the FBI field office in Washington, D.C., and moved with his wife and now six children to the nearby suburb of Vienna, Virginia. In D.C., Hansen was given positions in the Bureau's budget office, and this gave him access to information on a wider array of FBI operations, including wiretapping and electronic surveillance activities, as these were the budget line items that Hansen was placed in charge of. By this time, Hansen was regarded as an FBI computer expert. In 1984, he had transferred to the FBI's Soviet Analytical Unit, which was responsible for studying, identifying, and capturing Soviet spies and intelligence operatives within the United States. Hansen and his section of the unit were tasked with evaluating Soviet agents who volunteered to give intelligence to the U.S., and they were to determine whether these were genuine agents or redoubled agents. A redoubled agent is a double agent that has been caught by their handlers. So in this case, it would be the KGB would have caught that agent handing information to U.S. intelligence. And that same agent would be convinced to continue working with the Foreign Intelligence Agency, but they would be providing mainly sabotaged information. So they would technically be re-reversing their allegiance back to the KGB rather than the United States. And this gave Hansen a gold mine of opportunity for espionage. And in 1985, he began this new cycle that would last for over a decade by writing an anonymous letter to the KGB, offering his services and asking for $100,000 in cash in return. In the letter, he exposed the names of three KGB agents who were secretly working for the FBI. These three agents were Boris Yushin, Valery Martinov, and Sergei Motorin. Unbeknownst to Hansen, the KGB had been made aware of these double agents earlier that year by the same CIA mole, Aldrich Ames. But at least one of these agents, Yushchin, had returned to Moscow prior to the exposure by Hansen and was already under investigation by the KGB for losing a concealed camera in the Soviet consulate in San Francisco. For losing a concealed camera in the Soviet consulate in San Francisco. But it was Hansen and Ames's betrayal of Yushchin that led to his arrest. He was imprisoned for six years before he was ultimately released by a general amnesty that was granted to political prisoners, and he subsequently immigrated back to the U.S. The other two agents, Martinov and Motorin, were arrested and executed in Moscow. Investigations into the leak led the FBI to Aldrich Ames in 1994, and he was the first of four moles between the FBI and CIA to be arrested. 
Since the leak was blamed on Ames, Hansen continued his espionage undetected. And Hansen's next assignment was actually to work on the investigation that ultimately led to Ames's arrest. In 1987, Hansen was placed on a special team to study all known and rumored penetrations of the FBI to find the man who had betrayed the two double agents that had been executed, Martinov and Motorin. This meant, in effect, that Hansen was charged with searching for himself. By working directly on the case, Hansen was able to ensure that he was not revealed as the mole from the study, but then he went another step further and handed the entire study and its findings over to the KGB in 1988. Part of that study included a list of Soviet individuals who had contacted the FBI about FBI moles. And that same year, Hansen reportedly committed a, quote, serious security breach by revealing secret information to a Soviet defector during a debriefing. The agents working for him reported this breach to a supervisor, but no action was taken and Hansen continued his espionage. Some of the information that was passed to Soviet intelligence at this time regarded the FBI's construction of a tunnel beneath the newly constructed Soviet embassy in Washington, D.C., and the agency intended to use this to gather intelligence covertly. The tunnel was planned for construction beneath the embassy's decoding room, and the FBI planned to use it for eavesdropping but never did in fear of being caught. This tip earned Hansen $55,000 in cash. Additionally, Hansen would be influential in the blocking of an FBI investigation into a suspected mole at the State Department. The man being investigated was Felix Block, and he was accused of committing espionage. And when he became aware of the investigation, Hansen tipped off the KGB, who immediately cut communications with Block. Ultimately, the FBI could not secure enough evidence against Block to arrest him for espionage. However, he was terminated from his position at the State Department and denied his pension. Ironically enough for Hansen, the termination of the Block investigation, which led to an FBI investigation on how the KGB learned of the investigation into Block's potential espionage activities, ended up initiating the mole hunt that would ultimately lead to Hansen's arrest in 2001. But Hansen wasn't quite as discreet about his espionage activities as he hoped he would be. In 1990, his own brother-in-law, who was also an FBI employee, began to suspect that Hansen was up to something. He actually went to the FBI and recommended he be investigated for espionage after his sister, who was Hansen's wife, informed him that she found a significant pile of cash on a dresser in their home. She also told him in passing that Hansen had discussed the prospect of retiring in Poland, which at the time was part of the Eastern Bloc. Hansen's brother-in-law brought this up to his supervisor, but no action was taken. And in December of 1991, the Soviet Union disbanded, and fearing that he might be exposed as a result of the political upheaval, Hansen briefly terminated his espionage activities, ceasing communication with his handlers. Ten months later, Hansen re-engaged his handlers and began providing intelligence to the Russian Federation, who had now taken over the defunct intelligence agencies of the former Soviet Union. But this time, when Hansen offered up his services yet again to the GRU, instead of writing an anonymous letter, he went to the Russian embassy in person, approaching a Russian intelligence officer in the embassy's parking garage with a package full of documents. Hansen introduced himself with his Soviet code name of Ramon Garcia and described himself as a disaffected FBI agent who was offering his services as a spy. The officer he approached did not recognize the Soviet code name, so he just drove away. But the incident was not forgotten. 
it actually arose suspicion within the Russians who submitted an official protest to the U.S. State Department, suspecting that Hansen was actually a triple agent. Despite showing his face and revealing his code name, as well as his FBI affiliation, Hansen managed to evade arrest as the FBI's investigation in the incident did not advance. So at this point, you could say that Hansen continued to push his luck. In 1993, he hacked into the computer of a fellow FBI agent named Ray Mislock. Hansen printed a classified document from Mislock's computer and then brought the document to Mislock and said, quote, you didn't believe me that our system was insecure. Naturally, he seemed suspicious to Hansen's supervisors, who began to take a closer look into the incident, and in the end, officials believed Hansen's claim that he was merely demonstrating flaws in the FBI's system. But this was just the beginning of the end for Hansen. After Hansen's arrest, Mislock theorized that Hansen probably hacked into his computer to see if his superiors were investigating him for espionage and invented the document story to cover his tracks. But after the document incident, Hansen went dark with the Russians for eight years, though he did repeatedly hack into the FBI's internal computer case record to see if he was being investigated. But around the time of the document incident, investigations into suspected moles at both the CIA and FBI were in full swing. Investigators believed that there were two moles, one at the CIA and one at the FBI. There were three cases that led them to this belief, and I've mentioned all three of them already. The first was the betrayal of two double agents that were executed in the mid-1980s, Martinov and Motorin. And the second was the intercepted block investigation. Remember, he was the State Department employee that had been in contact with the KGB. And the third was the leak about the FBI tunnel underneath the former Soviet embassy. So the two agencies embarked on a joint mole hunt in 1994, which pretty quickly led them to Aldrich Ames, who was the mole at the CIA. He was arrested that year, and agents pretty easily connected him to the betrayal of the two executed double agents. However, it was impossible to connect Ames to both the block investigation and the tunnel. He couldn't be connected to the block investigation as he was stationed in Rome with the CIA at the time the investigation was taking place. And he couldn't have known about the FBI's tunnel under the Soviet embassy because he didn't work for the FBI. So this made it even more apparent to investigators that AIM was not the only mole, and that there was actually a mole working within the Bureau as well. As part of the investigation, a list was created of all agents among both the CIA and FBI that were known to have had access to cases that had been compromised. The FBI's codename for the suspected spy was Graysuit. And initially, the investigation primarily focused on CIA agents, hence the quick arrest of Ames. And it also did lead to the arrest of an additional CIA officer, Harold James Nicholson, who had been sending intelligence to the Russian Foreign Intelligence Service. But Hansen remained unscathed. In 1998, FBI profilers came into the picture, and it led to a false accusation of CIA agent Brian Kelly, who had worked in the intercepted block investigation. Kelly was thoroughly investigated. Both the CIA and FBI searched his home, his phones were wiretapped, and he and his family were under constant surveillance. At one point, a man with a foreign accent came to Kelly's home, warned him that the FBI knew he was a spy, and told him to show up at a metro station the next day to escape. 
But rather than escaping, Kelly reported the incident to the FBI. And in 1999, the FBI interrogated Kelly, his ex-wife, two sisters and three children who all rightfully denied everything. Kelly was ultimately placed on administrative leave until Hansen was arrested in 2001, which exonerated him. True progress toward Hansen's arrest was made when the FBI engaged in an operation where they paid disaffected Russian intelligence officers to deliver information on moles. The FBI paid $7 million to KGB agent Alexander Sherbakov, who had a file on an informant known as B. The file did not list the actual name of the informant, but it did have a copy of an audio tape that had been recorded in 1986, which contained a conversation between B and KGB agent Alexander Feflyov. When FBI agent Michael Wigsback listened to the tape, he thought the voice of B sounded eerily familiar. And as agents continued to go through the file for B, they came across notes that contained quotes from speeches made by famous World War II General George S. Patton, which are fairly racist in nature, so I won't repeat them here. But when agents came across the quotes in the file, FBI analyst Bob King recalled Hansen using the same quote in the past. And when agents listened to the taped conversation again, they were easily able to identify the voice of B as Hansen. This gave agents enough probable cause to surveil Hansen and catch him in the act. Because by now, Hansen was back in contact with Russian intelligence. His eight-year hiatus had now ended. But he was no longer working for the FBI when the suspicion finally arose, or at least not in the same capacity. Hansen was serving as a detailee to the Office of Foreign Missions at the Department of State in a temporary appointment. FBI leadership really wanted to keep Hansen close throughout the investigation so they could keep a closer eye on him. They were hoping to catch him in the act of passing information directly to the Russians. So they decided that Hansen needed to be removed from his temporary position and brought back to FBI headquarters. Special Agent Don Sullivan, a squad supervisor at the FBI's Washington field office at the time, volunteered to replace Hansen. And when he went over to the State Department to learn his new role, he was also tasked with gaining as much information about Hansen as he could. And he was especially tasked with observing and learning as much as he could about Hansen's information technology setup in his office, as well as keeping tabs on who Hansen was meeting and talking with. So Agent Sullivan noticed that Hansen had full access to the FBI's Automated Case Support, or ACS, system, and the State Department's computer systems. Sullivan noticed that Hansen spent a lot of time trolling ACS for information. He also noticed that with the relatively light responsibilities of the job, Hansen had a lot of time to spend trolling these systems for information. He could close the office door and just sift through endless amounts of internal intelligence information. Back at FBI headquarters, Hansen was presented with what seemed to be a prestigious appointment, but truly it was a bogus assignment. Neil Gallagher, who was the assistant director of the National Security Division at the time, called Hansen to inform him of the assignment, which would serve on his staff as a special assistant for a technology project. Gallagher also told Hansen that then-director Louis Free had approved a two-year extension on his service and a promotion to the senior executive service. Why a two-year extension? Well, Hansen was about to retire. If agents wanted to catch him in the act, they had to act fast, and by adding a two-year extension, that bought them some time. So Hansen moved into his new and heavily bugged office in January of 2001, and he was provided with an assistant named Eric O'Neill. 
who was tasked with keeping investigators apprised of Hansen's movements. And while he was playing the role of the assistant, he was truly a young FBI surveillance specialist. So O'Neill observed that Hansen was using a Palm 3 PDA that he used to store his information. When the opportunity arose, O'Neill was able to briefly obtain Hansen's PDA and have agents download and decode its encrypted contents. The FBI was able to obtain decisive evidence from that PDA that proved that Hansen was still actively spying. And by February 2001, over 300 people were working on the investigation into Robert Hansen and monitoring his every move. Hansen was being surveilled from the moment he left his home in Fairfax County, Virginia, to the time that he got home at night, and it was confirmed that he was still actively working as a spy for Russian intelligence. Investigators discovered that Hansen was handing over classified documents, information about human sources through encrypted communications and dead drops. And when performing dead drops, Hansen was careful to not actually meet any of his handlers in person. In fact, he and his handlers had a covert system of rather inconspicuous places that Hansen handpicked where he would leave documents, usually wrapped in a garbage bag, and then leave a sign to his handlers that the drop had been placed so that they could retrieve it. And he would collect his compensation for these drops in this same way. Investigators learned that Hansen was set to make a dead drop on February 18, 2001 at Foxstone Park in Vienna, Virginia. FBI surveillance had caught Hansen at this park before, so they were familiar with his routine. After dropping a friend at the airport, Hansen drove to Foxstone Park and placed a white piece of tape on a park sign, which was the signal to his contacts that the drop had been placed. He was then observed taking a package of classified documents wrapped in plastic to a wooden footbridge that crossed a creek in the park, and Hansen taped the package to the underside of this bridge. The FBI's arrest team caught him as he was walking back to his car and finally took him into custody. Upon his arrest, Hansen claimed to authorities that his motivations for spying were not political, but rather financial. Throughout the nearly 30 years that he spent intermittently spying for both the Soviet Union and Russia, Hansen never told the KGB or GRU his identity and refused to meet them personally, except for the single incident in the Russian embassy parking garage. It was discovered that throughout the time of his spying, Hansen received over $1.4 million in cash, bank funds, and diamonds from the Soviets and Russians in exchange for the intelligence that he gathered on their behalf. And surprisingly enough, Hansen hid the lavishness of his acquired wealth well. He and his family lived very modestly in Vienna, Virginia. He drove a Ford Taurus and his wife drove a minivan. And the only sign that he may have had some wealth was the fact that he wore a Rolex watch. The FBI also believes that the Russians never knew the name of their source. Hansen pled guilty to 15 counts of espionage on July 6, 2001, and on May 10, 2002, he was sentenced to 15 consecutive life sentences without parole. On June 6, 2023, Robert Hansen died of natural causes at the ADX Florence Supermax Federal Prison Facility in Fremont County, Colorado. And when Robert Hansen took his oath to become an FBI agent on January 12, 1976, he swore to support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies foreign and domestic, and to bear true faith and allegiance to the same. But he decided to violate that oath. The FBI and the American public trusted him with some of the most sensitive secrets of the U.S. government, and instead of upholding that trust, 
That trust was abused and betrayed, all in the shadow of greed. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Lawn Disorder. Find more episodes of this and other Precinct 444 shows wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop every Wednesday, with special episodes of Icons dropping on Tuesdays. As always, thank you to Christopher Mitchell for editing today's episode, and we hope to see you again soon at The Precinct. Please subscribe to Precinct 444 on your favorite podcasting platform to stay connected and to receive our latest content as soon as it drops. We would love to hear from you. Send in your questions, comments, and feedback to precinct444 at nleomf.org. You can help us make our content even better. The National Law Enforcement Museum is located at 444 East Street Northwest in Washington, D.C., and is dedicated to telling the story of American law enforcement. We expand and enrich the relationship between law enforcement and the community through educational journeys, immersive exhibitions, and insightful programs. Find us online at lawenforcementmuseum.org and stay tuned for more podcast content from Precinct 444. Until next time, stay safe. We'll see you at the precinct. Thank you.